Hello, everyone. Um, I got a little headache kind of coming and going, so if I cut the show off early, that will be why, just um, to let you know. Um, <clears throat> tonight's conversation is going to be about um, changes that you make when you're writing fan fiction and how that change should ripple out in your story and what happens when it doesn't. And also, um, when it comes to small world-building details, how those details, big or small, how they impact um, the world that you're creating, which is super important as we move towards November for our world-building challenge, A Whole New World, um, where you'll be required to take a character <clears throat> and move them into a new environment. And that character's movement in that new world will alter events um, that were canon in the original fandom. So, you know, so that's what uh, I think is super important for you to keep in mind. Not only that when you inject a new character into a narrative um, that already has an established canon, that that character is going to move through the canon in a way that might um, end up surprising you and it will <clears throat> cause um, events to shift and change as they move through and interact with characters. They can impact characters. You are a sum of your experiences, and those experiences can be altered when you put different people in situations. Like, for instance, what happens if um, Tony Dinozo was born in the Stargate verse and he's uh say he's an anthropologist and he's on a mission with SG one and it happens to be the mission where Daniel gets radiation exposure and he ascends. What if Tony takes Daniel's place or what if Tony prevents Daniel from doing what he does what happens if that happens and what are the ramifications of Tony's being there on the overall arc of that particular story in SG-1 so these are changes that you have to think about when you're inserting um, a different canon or a different um, character into a story when it, when it comes to fan fiction. And this podcast is mostly going to be about fan fiction. And we can talk about how some events, um, if you put specific events and ideas into the world building of an original story, that if you include a small detail in your world building, it has to have impact. It, it has to... It has to make, you know... A whole bunch of impact uh, for it to be important and you included it so it has to be important and if it's not important then why did you include it so it comes down to that and this actually this podcast is an inspiration from Jilly Jilly and I have been talking about um, uh, character motivations and um, uh, consequences of, of actions and what happens when you insert for instance when when you insert the Sentinel canon into different AUs. And upon discussing this, I've also come to the conclusion um, that I made a grave error when I was writing Duality. Uh, and um, I almost finished with it, so it's really too late to, to really uh, 
to do anything with that as far as the rough draft goes. But I do believe that um, I need to go back and address a few issues and uh, work my way back into um, what I would consider a smart reality for that particular situation. So what happens when you put sentinels and guides in a world like Harry Potter? And it becomes, you know, the thing is, is (laughs) they wouldn't be able to hide. Magic people would not be able to hide from sentinels and guides. And it could be said that sentinels and guides are a kind of magical person. Based on my headcanon with the psionic energy and all that, um, that they're a different form, a different kind of magic, that they have a different kind of um, magic in the, uh, in, 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 the, in the overall arc of um, Harry Potter, uh, which would be really interesting to explore. But here's the thing. In a world where sentinels and guides are abundant in the muggle world, how likely is it that Harry Potter would have grown up neglected in a cupboard? How many times could Vernon have said, boy, get in your cupboard before a sentinel within 50 to 100 miles of that house came knocking on the door and saying, why the fuck are you putting that five-year-old in a goddamn cupboard? Let's have a discussion. Right? The dude down the street smacks his wife once. Excuse me. I'd like to know why you hit your wife. I mean, I'm serious. I am, I am totally serious. Just how much child abuse and domestic violence would occur in a situation where there are tribal guardians in place to protect the tribe. And Harry would be a member of that tribe. He goes to school smelling sick. What's the likelihood that a sentinel isn't going to notice? He's underweight. He's under a lot of stress. He's six years old. He's under a great deal of stress. What the fuck, right? He's in distress. The guide is going to notice, right, if you have a psychic um, empathy kind of guy situation in your verse. These are things that could not possibly happen in a Harry Potter AU where sentinels and guides exist. In mass, if they're like two or three on the whole planet, yes, I can see how that wouldn't be an issue. But if you have many and you have prides or 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 packs, then it is impossible to imagine a world where sentinels and guides, which are designed by the canon of sentinel to protect the tribe, would allow the systematic neglect of Harry Potter. So Harry Potter would not have grown up in a cupboard. I mean, that's just, and if Harry Potter doesn't grow up into a, uh, grow up in a cupboard, what kind of boy goes to Hogwarts? These, um, the, um, these are the kinds of questions that you need to ask yourself. 
a very healthy one with a good sense of self-esteem, who understands, who's probably, in my particular case, been tested, and he knows he has sentinel genetics. So why the hell didn't he go talk to somebody when he didn't come online in puberty? Pardon me while I smack myself in the head, okay? Because I was like, really? You Really? You put all these fucking... Uh, I don't blame Jilly. I'm not bitter. But it she did get me thinking, right? And it kind of just like... Um, yeah, I think I'm definitely going to have to memory charm him just to get it out of the way. But um, it, it's really annoying. But more than that, since Harry was in the muggle system... Wouldn't the Sentinel Guy Center of London want to know why he's not online? And they would also know about Dumbledore, I mean, about magic in in general. They would know where he was. They would know he went to Hogwarts for most of, um, (laughs) it's just, it's just, you know, because I have this personal headcanon about how a Sentinel Guide world works. And um, it's just because Harry's in the muggle world, he would have a presence among a sentinel guide pride, and so would Hermione, because she's from the muggle world. So even if I just say that sentinels and guys are muggles, which I can't do because I've already you know, knee deep in something else part of that story, that there are magical sentinels. They're just super, super rare, and they're even more rare in Great Britain because of Dumbledore. That's a good question, Sorka, and not to mention how could someone like Riddle have been allowed to be so neglected? Now, Riddle is in, a, is, is in an orphanage. More to the point, Riddle was already torturing children before he met Dumbledore. In a world where sentinels and guides are common, especially in a muggle world, um, that kind of sociopathology would not go unnoticed. Because even if you don't, even if you're not a guide, there would be people around who are sensitive. And I'm not saying that Riddle would have been a sentinel. In fact, I think that's probably absolutely impossible um, for him to have been any kind of sentinel, lightened or dormant. Um, but just his sociopathology as a regular muggle would have hit alarm bells like mad. I mean, just, you know. I mean, for real. You know, so it, it kind of ripples out, and then, and then you have to think about, okay, this is the change that I've made. Where and how does this impact, and where can I leave details alone in a very realistic way? If, in my case with duality, um, if Harry has been suppressed and no one notices and he doesn't notice and he doesn't know he's a sentinel. How did that happen? So my solution is, is that he was never tested by the Sentinel Guide Center and they never noticed him because of the wards that Dumbledore had on Privet Drive. And that in reality, um, 
Harry has been suppressed since he was very young. Tunya was doing it before Molly was. So that's going to be how I'm going to um, to work that out to make it fit in with my personal headcanon as far as Sentinels and Guides go. Because if I don't and I leave that canon in place, it basically turns um, the Sentinels and Guides in Surrey and in London and just basically all over the UK into complete douchebags for not noticing that Harry Potter lives in a cupboard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, because for real, right? It it turns them into complete assholes. It, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that you know that that's that's just it's so you know. When you um, sometimes, you know, I'm actually one of, I think one of my better skills as as a plotter is that I'm very good at picking up the ramifications of a, um, of a change when I make it. So, and this is my second story um, for Harry Potter in the Sentinel Guide verse, the second one, and it didn't hit me the first round either. It really did not hit me. And I was like, when it hit me, and I'm not bitter, Julie, I promise. I was like, oh, God, I'm such, oh, oh, I had to lay down. I had to take a nap. I was so, I was just like, oh. Yes, I mean, the one where Hermione was a sentinel. I mean, because there's Harry, and he's an online guide, right? And how could a latent guide live in a fucking cupboard and not be like broadcasting some kind of empathic distress? I just, I'm just. Oh. <sighs> I'm just, it, you know, because, so, like, when you're when you're adding um your story your character into a fandom um it happens when you create when you create original events in a canon when you create original characters in the canon when you change the sexual orientation of a character um from their canon portrayal all of these have ramifications. It, they all; these are all changes that ripple out around your characters. Um, and I once got land blasted, land blasted, whatever. I once got cussed straight out because I said that sexuality is fundamental to a character's development. Um. I know how to spell it. I'm just not sure how to say it. Um, but I always say land. That's just like my mama, who knows how to spell Walmart, with a T, always sells Walmart, with a K. 
even though she knows it's a T, she ends up saying a K. And, you know, she's she's close to 70, so I'm just going to let her have it. I mean, there comes a point when you just got to let somebody say something the way they want to say it. Lambasted. Lambasted? Maybe. Bamboozled. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's what popped right into my head. Bamboozled. You've been bamboozled. Anyway, I was bamboozled. Um, so, you know, it's just really annoying because I, I, I kind of like um, accept a few things about myself as a writer that I consider problems, and I put a lot of effort into working them out. But um, the consequences of change um, in, a, in a story, in a, in a canon – has never been a weak point for me. So I was like, mm. I'm just like, I don't even, I, I got, I got nothing. I mean, it's just, it's really annoying, right? So, um, one of the ways that when I was very young that I trained myself to, um, <laughs> I said, I'm not bitter, Julie. You don't got to apologize. I think that I learned best from my mistakes, and I've obviously made a very big mistake um, w- w- with this particular concept, and um, uh, especially as it relates to Harry Potter. And it uh it's it's very interesting. I'm gonna have to go back to the drawing board and it makes me want to write a story where a petunia realizes that around the age of six her nephew might have a little bit more going on than magic. And considering how much trouble she would get into for mistreating a sentinel or a guide <laughs> she has a little epiphany herself. <laughs> So how that might not be a good idea. And then you have to think about the fact is when did Harry get put in the cupboard? Um, When did that become his bedroom? Because Petunia wouldn't have been able to go in there and change his diapers for, you know, for for fuck's sake. So at, at some point, Harry moved from the nursery to the cupboard. I need to figure out when that happened. Um, when he stopped being a baby and started being a freak, as far as um, Petunia was concerned. So around the age of three or four, I would think that would be probably you know a, a good estimation. So he probably spent a year, a year and a half um, in the nursery upstairs before he uh, maybe he hid in the cupboard one day and she just left him there and and, and, and it became it's kind of like when you give your dog this is going to sound really fucking terrible and I can't believe I thought it but I did think it so I'm going to say it it's kind of like when you give your dog a crate and it's their safe place and you treat it like their safe place and you know it's it's, it's where they sleep and it's where they if, if they're upset or, or they they, they go in there and it's their safe place. And then one day you get mad at your dog because they've chewed your shoe, your favorite pair of shoes, and you love those shoes and they were red and they had a pretty silver buckle. And he chewed the whole he chewed the whole strap off. 
this terrible dog did to you. This is terrible what he did, right? So you put him in the crate and you shut the door as punishment. And then it's no longer a comfort. It's now his punishment for chewing on your favorite red shoes. And they were my favorite shoes. I don't I've never hit my dog ever and I came very close to hitting him with that shoe. So I picked him up very carefully, put him in his crate and shut the door. <laughs> he got a time out. So his time out spot ended up being his safe place as well. So I think that in I can kind of picture that happening in the Dursley um household is that Harry retreated to the cupboard probably to escape from Vernon because Vernon couldn't get in there and he ended up staying there yeah they were beautiful they were beautiful shoes say well they were just beautiful they were red suede (sighs) I can't even talk about it Oh, they had a silver buckle. They were just the cutest fucking things you... Anyway, I can't talk about it. It's very upsetting. I, I um, Me and shoes and purses, it's, it's, it's very personal. It's very personal. Um, I'm going to put Jilly uh, on the phone here since it's her fault that I had this terrible, terrible experience. Um... I did a terrible thing to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would have hated to have had it happen six years from now. That would have been so much worse. <laughs> well, I, I do prefer to catch these things as they're happening. But, yeah, well, it's part of the commitment. I had that own my own moment of, what the hell was I doing? Um and my, there's like a there's like another um uh manifestation of the whole so you have like a you have like a you ever get a scene in your mind that you want to have happen in a story mm-hmm. and you get so wrapped up in making that scene happen that you don't realize that it has some horrible consequences you haven't thought through mhm and that's what I had was I had this scene in my head that was going to happen in my last story, and I got to <laughs> writing it, and I went, now, wait a minute. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all. Because <laughs> if I do I this, to, then I have to do this. Because <laughs> I had this notion in my head that um, that that Tony and, and Lucifer were going to bond, and Tony was going to kind of become aware of it when it kind of sunk into his head and he was going to be like "Eh, okay so what that just makes you more interesting and I went wait a minute (laughs) this doesn't work (laughs) I was going to have him really have a lot of sort of be very blasé about the whole thing and like well let's have sex again (laughs) um, I think he's going to have a little bit harder time adjusting to it and the other side of it was that Lucifer was going to be all on board with being a sentinel and I went no, I don't think that protect the tribe imperative is going to be something he's going to just get up and be happy about <laughs> all in one moment. <laughs> so I went, well, let's put that, let's, let's delay that. But, you know, I was thinking 
this is something I read in a story a long time ago. Um, and I felt like that the author was trying to make the same thing, a scene happen. And this is where you have unintended consequences that you don't see because you, as the author, didn't think through what it meant. But so let's say you want to have a funny moment. Let's say that um, friends been, let's say a kid, a guy, your friend's been working a lot, and they inadvertently locked themselves in their bathroom for three days, and they got stuck in there. And so nobody had seen them because they've been working a lot for three days. And then they get stuck in their bathroom for three days. And so when they finally see their friends, they're like completely freaked out and traumatized or whatever about having been stuck in the bathroom. And I'm not using a literal example, but extrapolating <laughs> the example here. So all their friends... He was not stuck in the bathroom for three days, people. Right. So all of my, all of their friends, it says that you get, the, you have this moment, and this is clearly the moment that the author was going for, was this moment of where he's telling his friends, I was stuck in the bathroom for three days, and I'm really like freaked out, and you know, I thought I was going to starve, and I would never get out of there or whatever. And all the friends are making fun and joking and laughing, and isn't that hysterical? And everybody has a good laugh and ha ha ha. But here's the thing. The unintended consequence is that every person in that room who's laughing about this did not notice that their good friend was missing for six days. Right. So you've just made all of your characters who are supposed to be the good guys complete assholes, (laughs) not because they laugh at this person's misfortune, but because they didn't notice that somebody they supposedly cared about was missing for six days. And that's the kind of stuff you've got to think through, is when you're making a joke at somebody's expense or whatever, what does it look like? What is it, are you making your other characters, characters that we're supposed to be sympathetic to, are you making them complete dicks? Everybody's and this going, is wow. exactly how dead air happened. Yes, that's exactly how dead air happened. We'll make a joke at Tony's expense... But it just made um, Tim and McGee and Ziva um, criminals. For those of you who don't watch NCIS and who don't read NCIS fan fiction, there was an episode of NCIS, the original series, um, Dead Air, where Tony Dinozo, um is out in the field with his two subordinate agents. He is the senior field agent. And Gibbs is in charge of the team, and Tony is his second. And I think Ziva was actually a probationary agent at this point, right? Yeah, she's still a probie. Okay, so they're looking for a terrorist, and Tony gets elected or chosen to do this undercover work. Um, and this canon, and this story is this this happened in the canon of the show. This is exactly how they wrote it. We're not going to embellish details and but we'll talk about the ramifications of it afterwards. And Tony is in this neighborhood looking for a terrorist, and he's recording conversations that can get a voice print because somebody went into a radio station and killed two people live on the air, so they have the killer's voice on tape. And Tony is looking for this man who came into a radio station and killed two people in cold blood with a gun, a rifle of some kind. Um, And he's doing these recordings. And he has to talk to a whole neighborhood without arousing suspicion. Like 20 or 30 houses? Mm-hmm. 
It takes hours. It takes hours. And Ziva and Tim are in the car this whole time. They make no effort to give Tony breaks. They, okay, that's just my personal take on that one. Um, at some point, they get tired of listening to Tony do his job undercover looking for a terrorist, and they turned the radio off. I think it's event, the canon. I think mm, it's a few minutes in. A few minutes into the into it. But it's more than an hour that they don't listen. But even more than a minute that they don't listen would be a crime. So Tony eventually gets finished doing these voice prints. And by the way, he did end up talking to the gunman at, at, at one point. So he had, in fact, talked to a terror. He talked to several terrorists in that neighborhood, actually, because they ended up being a homegrown terrorist cell with a bomb. So nothing happens to Tony. The exact line is, he says, you don't play dumb, because Tony comes back to the car with his voice raspy, and they ask what happens to him. He says, don't play dumb. You reveled in every minute of my suburban suffering. McGee says, actually, no, we've not been listening for the last several hours. Ziva says, one can only stand your voice for so long. This is a canon event. Two federal agents have just admitted to their superior, by the way, that they left him in the field with no backup for several hours while he looked for a terrorist. It was played off as a joke. Fandom, on the other hand, exploded. Because here is, this is not a joke. You don't leave somebody undercover in a dangerous situation without backup and think it's funny. It's not funny. Because it turns Ziva and Tim, who were at that point just really annoying assholes, into criminal assholes. Mm-hmm. And... I think that that's, this is a, that is a classic case of writers not thinking through the consequences of what they're doing. And what they thought would be a funny way to poke at Tony was, in fact, a way to get fandom to actually hate two characters. And hate they did. You only have to, like, go look up Dead Air fan fiction on Google to get a good idea of just how much hate was generated out of this one episode. And this is after, you know, um, this is after Aaliyah, right? Mm-hmm. So Tony yep. had actually um, been beaten and almost killed by a terrorist because of Ziva at this point, and a lot of fans still didn't have a problem with her. Some did, I did. Um, and then there was this. This was after Tony and McGee and Gibbs risked their lives to go into Somalia to rescue Ziva. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. It was a so he risked later. his life and almost died 
to get this woman out of the hands of a terrorist, a, a fundamental Muslim, a fundamental terrorist. What was his name? Salim Oman. Oh, see, she knew. <laughs> they saved her life, and Tony was instrumental in that. And he, and she still put him at an unspeakable. Pretty much hated her from the get-go because I loved Kate, and it pissed me off when they killed Kate. Um, well, there's just no scenario ever, no scenario ever, that it is the right thing to do to put a federal agent's murderer's sister in her chair, even if the sister was not complicit in any way, shape, or form. It is completely tasteless. And it shows no respect for Kate's memory that they would do that. You just you just don't do it. I mean, it was like disrespecting every agent, um, everyone, every agent in the at, at NCIS that they would bring in the family member um, of her murderer <laughs> to replace her. Especially when, okay, one, she's Mossad, which is um, basically uh, Israeli Secret Service, basically. I mean, Israeli CIA, FBI, CIA, NSA, sort of. Yeah, they don't really do investigations, I know, but they're more an intelligence agency. Um, she uh, isn't a U.S. citizen. She technically works for Mossad. She's put into a premier investigation team in a federal agency where she's exposed to a multitude of information. Um. That's that sh- that should be considered classified, and no one blinks an eye. It just kind of it's kind of like when you're watching porn and the actors get into a position that you just know there's no possible way that two human beings could get in that position and have insertion happen. And sometimes insertion is a pain in the butt, right, Jilly? <laughs> sometimes the insertion point is a pain in the ass. <laughs> That's right. Um, and you do that head, you're trying to figure out how they accomplished that. You got your head all tilted. I did that head tilt. I did the porn head tilt over Ziva for like three seasons. I could not figure out why the fuck she was there. No, this is this is like when you want. This is a case of trying so hard to make something happen that you're not thinking through the ramifications of it. And the thing is, when you put something out publicly, inevitably somebody's going to point it out to you. And NCIS had its fans going, "Are you high? (laughs) What the fuck are you thinking? This is not how this works. This is not how any of this works. We're not dumb." (laughs) And the worst thing you can do, actually, when you're running a TV show like that, is Assume that your audience is stupid and treat them as such. I'm just saying. Yep, it's just it's and there's so much I I read so much um, where you're just going. Now some things I'm not saying that people are going to think about everything, but there's sometimes I read something and I feel like people didn't try to think about anything. Anything. It's like it's like you just like you know. We're going to take, especially when you're combining common fanon with canon. There are some fan, some fanon elements don't work well together. They may be common, but they don't all exist, belong in one place. You know, you can't just take fanon elements that sound interesting, 
put them in a bag with your chicken, shake it, <laughs> and have a tasty dish. <laughs> you have to figure out how those elements actually work together. Like in the Harry Potter instance, you can't have grab the fanon that sentinels and guides are abundant and well-known, and they have a protect-the-tribe imperative, and have them living next door to an abused child and not do anything about it. Oh, God, I can feel the knife twisting. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not the only one who's made this mistake. So. No, you definitely are not. But, you know, how do you get around it? So if it's really important to you to have, and I'm not speaking to you, Kira, but you in the in the generic. Um, if it's really important to you to have that element of preserving Harry's childhood as it was in canon, then you have to adjust your sentinel and guide fanon. Your world building about sentinels and guides has to change. Either how common they are, how driven they are to protect the tribe. Maybe they live at the fringes of society instead of deeply in urban areas. I mean, there are ways to make anything work, provided you well, not anything, think of it. most things, provided you're willing to put the thought into it. But you just can't throw a bunch of elements together and go. So, one of the reasons why, we'll use a different example, and I'm not picking on anybody. Cause I'm just, I actually don't read this crossover, but I'm just telling you why I don't read this crossover is Supernatural <laughs> and NCIS. So I'm not picking on any particular story because I haven't read them. The reason why I cannot, in my head, read a story that has NCIS crossed with Supernatural is because unless the Supernatural world is known, I can't see it. And the reason is because if you put in Supernatural canon preserved the way it is, with NCIS canon preserved the way it is, you have just made Tony Dinozo incompetent. You've made Gibbs incompetent and willfully blind. Give me the same thing for a Criminal Minds. Right. Exactly. Any, any procedural crime drama, you cross it into a canon, preserved the way it is, where law enforcement behaves like they behave on Supernatural, with the level of Supernatural events happening the way that they happen, Supernatural canon, or Buffy, whatever, you have now... a accomplished unintentionally incompetence on the part of one of your main characters, assuming your main characters are NCIS, Criminal Minds, whatever. And I just can't get behind that. I don't... Tony being introduced to the supernatural world after he's been in law enforcement for 15 years, I don't... It's almost an impossible leap for me to make. More so, aren't the Winchesters like serial killers, basically? According to law enforcement, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I never actually watched Supernatural, but I, I think that there could be a um, a comparison drawn to that. I mean, they kill a lot of people. Um, just imagine the criminal minds coming across Sam and Dean. Yeah. Now, if you you could now if you are going to go the step of merging the canons and making a complete AU of where law enforcement is aware of the supernatural world, then you have to go and then change what how Sam and Dean are regarded in the world. Because, because they either be they're criminals. renegades or 
Right. They're renegades and criminals, or they work in the system. Right. That's the point is you just can't throw things in a bag and shake it and write canon as it is, rely on use canon as is, and not think through the consequences because some canons don't mesh. They don't mesh at all without making having some unintended consequence that reflects on your characters. Then you take a head tilt. Yeah, yeah, head tilt all the way to your ear, and you still don't know how they got that dick in there. (laughs) Just (laughs) sometimes you can take a canon that it works really well with, like um, Stargate canon. Um, Most of the events of Stargate are secret. Mm-hmm. So you can insert NCIS, you can insert Criminal Minds, Numbers, any number of shows um, that way because Stargate is a secret. And so they get read in on the secret, that works. But when you mix a paranormal canon with a regular contemporary setting canon, there are you have to do it completely full on balls to the wall or it doesn't work. Mhm. You've got to sit through and think through the consequences and you're going to have to change things. You're going to have to change things. Something's going to have to be different. You're going to have to do some level of your own world building to make those things come together. That's what thinking things through, thinking through character motivations, thinking through combat. You know, if like let's say the supernatural is known in some way, well, maybe Tony is a hunter and not a cop. You mean you have to think through if he's raised in a world where the supernatural is known, is he still going to be on the same path? And if he is, and if he's a hunter, is he renegade or does he work for an official organization? And considering his um, characters his characterization in um, NCIS, I would say definitely that he works um, within the system as a hunter, if he works as a hunter. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about redeeming Snape. The thing about Severus Snape is that you cannot redeem Severus Snape after Lily Potter is murdered. Right. His redemption has to come before the events of October 31st, 1981. If you want to redeem him in a way where he's not carrying around like this giant dark stain on his soul, I mean, if you want to do redemption as in paying for his crimes as in, say, Lady Magic sends him, shows him the consequences of what his mistake was and sends him back in time to redo it, but that he still has to live with the consequences of his actions, that kind of redemption maybe. But um, if you want truly where he's a character that has no reason to need uh, that kind of redemption, it has to be before he... Senna's is killing me. I'm sorry. I, I had to. Mm. You know how hard it is to swallow a laugh like that, Senna? She said that he's a stain and she had to tide pin him out, but she's allergic to tide. I got really <laughs> tickled. And it was just like, it hurt. It, it, it actually burned not to laugh while she was talking. Hope you're sorry, Senna. You better be she sorry. Did, she did tide pin him out. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, yeah, is because his actions are so reprehensible. 
mm-hmm. um, his cannon actions are from basically the moment he hears the prophecy and runs off to his dark lord as a loyal Death Eater and tells him Snape com- becomes irredeemable. Because you can't tell me he didn't know Lily's due date. As obsessed as he was with her, he had to know she was pregnant, and he had to know when her baby was due. Yeah. And even if even and if you tried to even if you tried to go that she was that Harry Harry was like two or three weeks early, Snape is not um, an incautious man. He's not gonna pin his um, his actions on a child being born on time. Someone asked in the chat room, would he have sold her out if it was his baby? The only way it would have been his baby is if he wasn't a Death Eater. And then there would have been no need for him to sell anybody out. He probably wouldn't have even been in Hogsmeade trying to spy on Dumbledore, as he was obviously doing, if he was with Lily. If he was with Lily, he would have been a member of the Order, and he would have been fighting against Voldemort. But the, I don't see there's any situation where Snape could be a Death Eater and be with Lily at the same time. But then if he had genuinely loved her, genuinely, even as a friend, he would have never been a Death Eater to begin with. Because how do you justify following someone who thinks someone you love should be exterminated. The prophecy, there is some um, question about when the prophecy takes place. Um, But... um, Let's see. Okay. Lily and James went into hiding a week before Voldemort found them. Which means Dumbledore didn't tell them immediately. Or even after Harry was born. He didn't tell the Longbottoms or the Potters that they were being searched for. In fact, when he told them and when they both went into hiding, that's when Voldemort struck. So it could be argued that Dumbledore's identification of Neville and Harry as potential targets for the prophecy is the reason that Voldemort hunted Harry to begin with, because he wasn't hunting him before. Mm-hmm. Because he would have found him very, very easily. And let's say you want to, going down that, that thought train, if Snape didn't know that Lily was pregnant, the minute he found out that she was and was able to extrapolate her due date, the right course of action is to go to her and James 
not go to Dumbledore. Yeah, because he wouldn't have been hard to write her a letter at the very least. Right. If Snape was already a spy for Dumbledore, would he have given the prophecy to to Voldemort? The answer is no. The last thing that Dumbledore wanted was for Voldemort to have the prophecy. He invested a great deal of effort and time into making sure that he did not get the prophecy. That's why Sybil Twani, everybody you say her name, was basically a prisoner at Hogwarts in her little tower. Because he didn't want anybody to have access to her because she had given a genuine prophecy about the Dark Lord. And when he got a body, the first thing that um, Dumbledore did was make sure that Voldemort couldn't go into the um, Department of Mysteries and get the fucking prophecy. So there's no way that Snape would have given Voldemort the fucking prophecy if he was already a spy for the Order. If he was a spy for the Order, he wouldn't have been spying on Dumbledore. Now, the prophecy says the one who, basically the one who can defeat the Dark Lord approaches, which means at that point, Lily and Alice were pregnant. Um, I, I had worked out a timeline for that, and I'm not sure what I did with it. Hold on. Um, let's see. It... Where did I stick that? Um, okay, so ten months of of, of gestation. Um, he heard it during an interview for the divination position which could have taken place in August of... According to the HP lexicon, that was sometime in 1980. Okay, Harry is 15 months old on October 31st. He was born July 31st, 1980. Now, Sybil said she had been working for Hogwarts for a certain number of years. And it can't take place. She could not have given the prophecy after Neville and Harry were born because they're approaching. The Chosen One is approaching. Um, So he had to have heard the prophecy between August 1979 and, say... May 1980. Okay, so this thing in the lexicon says that Trelawney was um, in early September 1995, claimed she had held her post for nearly 16 years, which would imply that she was hired in the middle of the school year. And then Dumbledore says in June of 1996 that he had the interview was 16 years ago. So unless Dumbledore is wrong, the interview must have been in the first few months of 1980. 16 years before Dumbledore's statement, a slightly exaggerated nearly 16 years before Trelawney's, and during the timeline of the year most likely to have been a cold, wet night. So either the late winter of 
of 79 or the early part of 1980. Now, for my story, I picked January of 1980. The thing is, is I don't mean approaching as in born, but, you know, the thing is, is if they're approaching, um, that could be taken as like they're actually coming to Britain, but you have to keep in mind that the parents have to also have defied Voldemort three times. So it can't be somebody living in another country. Who's had no, whose parents have had no exposure to Voldemort. He has to be, the chosen one has to come from um, people who are in and around Voldemort for an extended period of time who have defied him three times and who have survived to do so. So that cuts the pool down drastically. Um, but since it does say approaching, it, it's my firm belief that it has to have been given before Harry and Neville were born. Because that's the only thing they, they are approaching. They're not approaching anything else but the birth canal. <laughs> At, at that age. I mean, you know, if James's parents had defied Voldemort three times, you could say that James was approaching his final confrontation with Voldemort, right? You could say that. Um, but when you put in the qualifications of coming from parents who have defied him three times, um, It's very literal. I take it very literally. I have to um, because otherwise that's just one big giant plot hole that I can't deal with in Harry Potter. Of which there are many that I have a problem mm-hmm. with. And with this kind of stuff, with character motivations and plot decisions and world building and whatever it is you're going to do, it comes down to a, that whole suspension of disbelief issue. If you can get people over it, you know, and and not fix it, and a lot of times people can, especially with Harry Potter. People can get people over a a lot of suspension of disbelief without actually addressing anything. But if you can't, we're talking about the issues that just completely shatter your suspension of disbelief. If you've made everybody in the room who we're supposed to like an asshole, how do you get past that? If you have... um, a character who's done something completely so so egregious it's unbelievable. And <coughs> they're <Geneva. laughs> yeah. and they're um and then they abuse somebody in addition to that, and then we're supposed to buy that they're a good guy. That's that's a suspension of disbelief thing. And when you have world building elements where you say that sentinels and guides do whatever, or they stand for whatever, and then you have plot elements that don't line up with that, people can't suspend their disbelief because they go, that doesn't make sense. And that's why we had a couple conversations about um, character motivation, rationale for plot decisions, um, thinking through your world building, is there a reason for it? Friends, if you're going to have... Then she stabbed um, me. And then I stabbed her. Yeah, but I'm not myself. 
Someone in the chat room said, um, what if the parents are muggles? Well, that makes no sense because um, muggles would defy Voldemort exactly once. Mm -hmm. And if their very existence is defying him, then every muggle on earth does that multiple times every minute they're alive. So his parents must be magical. They must be able to stand against him. Not perhaps as equals, but equal enough to escape with their lives. Then you have the power requirement. No muggle is going to be equal to Voldemort. And I would argue that the only way that Harry was able to meet Voldemort on an equal footing was because he had more power. Than Voldemort, which makes sense because how do you take someone with experience counts for quite a lot. Experience education does count for quite a lot. So the only way to make Harry Voldemort's equal was to give him more power. And how did J.K. Rowling do that? Master of death. She she made him the master of death. There's an interesting um, plot idea on my site. I'm going to share it with you, and then you can help me go over the ramifications of it. And um, it was very interesting, and when I saw it um, in the Ask Me Anything on my page, I was like, well, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I started thinking about it a whole lot. But then, then there were a whole lot of ramifications of the idea. They kind of hit me like a Mack truck. What if – do you remember the Three Brothers, the story, and how the, the cloak he wanted to hide from death? Mm-hmm. And so death gave him the cloak of invisibility? And he could hide from death. What if the cloak is the reason that Voldemort could not kill Harry? I mean, because it was in his possession or his family's possession? Because it's in the line. They all descend from Ignatius. I always pronounce it Ignatius, but it could be anything. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Ignatius, um, what? That actually sounds like it's more real. I, I, I think I've heard that somewhere. Um, but anyway, it doesn't matter but, where it is. It doesn't have to be anywhere if it's a family heirloom. Um, but the ramifications well, there thereof is that if it protected, well, Harry, the instant the instant problem I have with that, then there should be a fuck ton of male Potters. I mean, a, a Lord Potters running around. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they're all from death, how does Ignatius die? Um, Ignat, whatever, whatever his name was. Um, old dude with the cloak. I how does the old dude with the cloak die? Um, um, how does how does James's parents die? How does James die? Anyone with Potter blood should be protected. Which um, means they're an, all immune to the killing curse, perhaps. And only can die of natural causes. So if you but say if that, that but why just the killing curse? Why not? Right. Wouldn't you have to? Wouldn't you have to extend it to any magical death? So they have to die of natural causes. They can't be killed by magical means. But if that's um, the case, and even if um, James's father has died of, of natural causes, um, uh, the question becomes. 
how could this possibly be a secret, and why would Voldemort rush over to Godric's Hollow and take a shot at Harry Potter, knowing very well that the Potters don't die that way. That the only way to kill a Potter... Yeah, you'd have to like put him on the top of a building and push him off. And even then, would he die? Well, it's not magical. His impact of the ground would be very real. (laughs) Very mundane. (laughs) Jeep 10, um, the Potter family descends through canon from the Peverell family. How do you say that? I always say Peverell, yeah. Peverell. They descend directly from him, and that's where they got the cloak. So, yeah. So it it and let's say okay, so let's say you want to make that happen. Well, then you have to start looking into the 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 conditions for magical protection are conditional, and okay, conditioned on what? Well, if you have it be only the current lord, the person who currently has the title, well, then you have to immediately address, without addressing the Harry issue right then, is that that should be James. And why wouldn't oh well, you know, I may have just thought a way around that actually. It's weird. But if it only protects the current lord, first you have to address how um how all the potters have died. They all would have died by mundane means. So let's say you manage to address all that and James is the Lord. And he chooses to abdicate his title and pass it on to Harry so that Harry's protected. In which case, Harry would have like a little Lord's ring on his little, you know, little baby finger. Little Lord so Potter. <laughs> it would be really cute. It would be adorable. That's the only way, it's the only way I can think of where you don't have plot hole after plot hole after plot hole is that it's only the person who basically, let's say the Peverell title became the Potter title and that they're re- he's really Lord Peverell and not Lord Potter and the current Lord has the protection of the cloak and James passes the title on to his son while he's still living because he worries about the prophecy but the the inheritance of the cloak is not a blood right it is a fam- it is a family heirloom that has been passed down. So the owner of the cloak is the one who's hiding from death. Who has the ability to hide from death? The owner of the cloak. It doesn't matter who owns the cloak. If you own the cloak, you you have the ability to hide from death. Well, maybe then. Um. Hmm. Well, you could have it, um, Ignatius um, entailed the cloak to with a, some massive entailment spell or something where it's entailed to the lord of the family line so that anybody else is just in possession of it. They don't actually own it. And the, with... Um, if you had wrote in in your canon in your story world building that um, items that are entailed to a family line can be summoned to be returned, if anybody does walk about with a family cloak, it can be summoned back. The thing is, is we only have Dumbledore's word that he had the cloak. 
what's to say he didn't take it from Godric's Hollow after James was killed? Very true. Now, he says that he tells Harry that his father entrusted him with the cloak. But that does not mean, by any touch of the imagination, that that's true. Because characters can lie. So there's every reason to believe that Dumbledore picked the cloak up when he was in Godric's Hollow. Someone pointed out that there are three known masters of death, and one of them is Dumbledore because he borrowed the cloak from James. That, But again, this is... You're working on someone's interpretation of canon, not actual canon, really, that, that Dumbledore... There's no scene death. where you see James giving Dumbledore the cloak. Right. And, and you know, whatever canon... Dumbledore is telling the truth. And you have to, you know, you have to consider what is the magic around ownership. It, does borrowing, I mean, is, is like, literally, it's like 90, is, is possession considered ownership? Or is there some magical property to ownership? Because if possession is ownership, um, well, because you got to look at the um, the Elder Wand had special magical properties around ownership, as it could only be taken um, by someone who had defeated it, right? Right. It couldn't just be picked up. You you were not the ma- you did not master the Elder Wand just by picking it up from where it was lying on a table. There's somebody talking about a letter in the ch- in the chat room, a letter that was found at Grimwald Place. Now let's talk about that particular letter. That letter from Lily to Sirius, and how the fuck did it end up in Grimwald Place, a house that Sirius had been thrown out of as a teenager, and did not go back to until after he was out of um, Azkaban. And then only because Dumbledore forced him to. How exactly did that letter get there? No, but no, really. I mean, how did that letter get there? Did someone go over to Sirius's flat apartment, whatever, pack up all his shit and send it to his mom? And his mom just put it in his room like a good mom would? Who was she? Wasn't she imprisoned in Grimald Place? Yes. <laughs> I don't see her being very obliging. I mean, she made she made a, the nuttiest house elf just being around her and in her house made creature a complete whack job. She's I don't a nut see job. Going... There's no way she kept serious as shit when he went to prison. There's no fucking way that letter from Lily survived all of that. And ended up in Grimwald Place of all places. That makes no fucking sense to me whatsoever. None. Not a, not a damn bit. Again, we're talking about consequences and changes and what happens. Now, obviously, the writer wanted us to believe that that letter was there and that it was genuine and that it came from... Um, Lily, too serious. But the question remains is how the fuck did it get there? I 
And would really, would have, would his mom have let that letter from a muggle-born witch stay in her house? Now, someone said something earlier. Hmm. Where'd it go? Someone says, if he's Harry's magical guardian. Magical guardianship is fanon, not canon. Petunia Dursley is Harry's guardian. And then Sirius was his guardian, but I'm not sure they actually used the term magical guardian in the book. I, I think that particular term um, is Fanon. Because Harry had to have his form signed by a guardian. Um, Dumbledore technically had no authority over Harry outside of school. Yeah, and everybody just let him do whatever the hell he wanted to do. Because he was the leader of the light. <laughs> Which, honestly, almost annoys me as much as the greater good. It, they're, they're pretty much even Stephen on that. The leader well, of the so <laughs> I, 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 I feel like in my head forever. That just became Dumbledore's theme song in my head. So somebody pointed out that it could have come to Grimald Place through Arcturus Black um, that he put Sirius' stuff in Grimald Place after Walburgia died, which she died in 1985. Um, Arcturus died six years later. Uh, It implies a level of sentimentality that that is suspect. Because I find it kind of unbelievable it. in the black family. Yeah, because Arcturus in canon, well, he's pretty much non-existent, but he he's a non-entity who was so sentimental about Sirius's stuff that he held on to it from when Sirius was imprisoned in 1981 for at least four years to take that stuff and put it in Grimald Place after Walburgia died. It but is, if he was that sentimental about his grandson. He'd have done right? something about his grandson being in prison. Without a fucking trial. I'm just saying. <laughs> if either just, one of them gave a shit about Sirius or his shit, they would have given they would have made sure the ministry gave him a trial. And considering how politicians are bought and sold in the magical world, either one of them could have paid that woman who was the minister to give them the verdict they wanted, whether he was actually innocent or not. The thing was, is if Sirius Black had been a Death Eater, his mother would have bought his way out of Azkaban. Right. She knew he was innocent. That's why he was in there. So, Harry Potter is, the whole canon, actually, is a perfect example of there are so many things that are that weren't thought through 
and that we now see as plot holes and we write fix it fix around that it's a really good exercise for kind of delving into consequences and why things do and don't make sense now you can't fix everything in a single story because you try to fix all of the canon things that don't have good explanations you know you'd be two million words down the road and have not quite told your story yet I think that we all know that J.K. Rowling is a pantser. Yeah. Um, if you didn't figure that out by the end of, say, The Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> it, you, know, I, you know, I never... Which could have honestly been was, about 40,000 words shorter than it was. Yeah. I read, I read Order of the Phoenix, and I was so frustrated because I had that moment of where I went... Sirius Black, who is a character I really enjoyed in the story, his entire existence was a plot device. And I found it really frustrating and very annoying. And hurtful. Mm-hmm. There's a line in a story I'm writing, or, yeah, it's my, um, it's Tony Steve, Avengers fic, where um, uh, Tony's tell Steve he'd make a great secret keeper and Steve says oh I get that reference because he had read some of the Harry Potter books and Tony immediately responds don't read book five it'll break your heart there's a self insert because book five broke my heart Mm -hmm. (laughs) I am terrible I read six six and seven but I was still heartbroken I think if you look at Harry Potter it's probably one of the best examples of Trying to uh, taking a scene that you want to have happen, and writing that scene and not thinking through the consequences. And I think that there are things that J.K. Rowling wanted to happen with Harry that she just was like, "This would be great. I'll have a boy raised in a cupboard." And she had that scene in her head to the a letter addressed to the cupboard under the stairs because that's very magical, right? That they haven't very. been in his home. They haven't been in his home, but they know he's not in a bedroom. It's that very is so magical. magical. And, and yet, she never thought the consequences through. So the first time someone said that Harry was an abused child, she was literally taken back. She was like, no, Harry wasn't abused. And she probably really did literally believe that until she recognized the consequences of how she addressed his school letter. And you try so hard to make something happen. And that happens over and over and over in Harry Potter, that you have a child and going into a preteen and a preteen and then into a teenager and he's making he's doing things that make no sense they make that I mean you've got this great scene that's very dramatic like children finding a three-headed dog and not reporting it to their parents there's no way that Ron Weasley did not tell his mother about the three-headed <laughs> dog well even if he didn't tell his mother you know he wrote home and told Jenny yeah who definitely went and told Molly. So you have these scenes, and they're so and they have, they're so impactful, and we like them so much that sometimes it even takes us a while to think through why it doesn't make sense. And sometimes we don't even care that it doesn't make sense because it's so impactful and it's great. But then sometimes the reader's suspension of disbelief is shattered, and they can't keep going. For instance, when Molly trucks her ass through... The train station, bitching about muggles mm-hmm. and asking 
her children which platform they use when they only use one platform and she used it for seven years and she's about to put her sixth child on the fucking train. How the... Now, the reason is... is because <laughs> the only way we can... And so what do we do as, 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 as fan fiction writers when we read that is we go, well, of course, it makes logical sense that magicals would not come through Muggle London to get to the train because why in the world would you do that? So magicals usually travel to the train in a different way. Platform nine and three quarters, that entrance is for Muggleborns to be able to get on the train. So Molly must not have ever been through that plat- that entrance before. So it's suspicious now that she's there. And therefore we ascribe nefarious reasons to her presence in the muggle world, alerting Harry to how to get through the platform. Well, yeah, the whole purpose of Molly doing this is to alert Harry to get to the platform and so that Harry meets the Weasleys, um, because Ron's going to play a major part um, in the rest of the books. That's the author plot device that J.K. Rowling deployed. The problem becomes is it makes Molly look a couple of things. One, she's manipulative. Two, she's setting Harry up. Three, she just could be a dumbass. <laughs> but that too. There's also, but it's interesting you could, that you said that because that that, uh, that that that's a Muggleborn entrance. Because if it is, they fucking used it a lot, didn't they? The, the, the pure bloods. The other side of it is is that it was listed on the Hogwarts letter. But that could be the letter that's penned to Muggleborn. Yeah, yeah, you could say that 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 that, yeah. that, that they're not all getting the same letter. Because um, it's actually bad. Um, very, very, very bad, both character development and world building, um, to have someone like Lucius Malfoy, who abhors muggles, going through a train station, a muggle train station, to drop his son off for school. So it stands to reason that on the other side of that barrier there are flus um, for magicals to bring their kids in. And if that's the case, then why did Molly and um, Molly and Arthur drive their kids and Harry to the fucking train exactly. when they could have gone through the flu? They were a plant. And that's apparent to anybody who is thinking through how bizarre that scene was, is that they were a plant. Because... It doesn't make sense for magicals, especially magicals who we see throughout all of Harry Potter canon, don't blend in well in the muggle world. At all. They wear bizarre clothes, they stick out like a sore thumb, and the purebloods wouldn't tolerate it. Any pureblood with any amount of power would have gotten rid of, would have made sure there were flus into the train station long before the muggle train station even existed. It would never have right. gotten to the point of, um, I mean, it wouldn't even have to happen. It wouldn't even be happening in the 80s and 90s. This would have been happening when the train station was built. It would have been like, we're not walking through with muggles. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> You're out of your damn mind. Number one, I think eventually the thing is, is that very public entrance into the magical section of um, the train um, is a violation of the statute of secrecy waiting to happen. Yeah, it's very bizarre. I mean, unless muggles just bounce right off of it. 
So the question is, and you can extrapolate and ask yourself a whole bunch of questions, is why does Harry have to go through this barrier every fucking year? Do all the students have to go through it? And what happens when they do? Do they have to exit through this entrance? Is that what puts the trace on their wand every year? Does it renew the trace on their wand so that while they're at Hogwarts, they're not getting constant notifications about use because um, the, the barrier cuts their charm off as they enter the platform and then turns it back on as they leave? Why are they forcing these kids through this exit and entrance. And also, what happens if one person is going in and another person is coming out? Oops. Is it kind of like the um, the night bus? They just kind of shh around each other? <laughs> <laughs> but for starting from very early in the Harry Potter books, you can start asking yourself questions about things that didn't this could be just an exercise. Sit down with the first book and start doing some think-through rationale about why did this happen, Why doesn't? but it clearly doesn't make sense, and what does it mean? How can I interpret this in a way that makes sense? And usually what happens with stuff that, makes, that doesn't make sense in Harry Potter is the fan fiction writers ascribe nefarious purposes to it. <laughs> almost, almost like immediately, oh, shit. Dumbledore's an asshole, but Dumbledore is an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> hey, the assumption is is that Dumbledore literally dropped Harry Potter on the front doorstep of Privet Drive without even a fucking knock on the door and just walked away. Um, there's no notifications of, of, of an animal getting near him. There's no warming charm. There's no security measures. There's nothing. Now, you can go back and say that he did all these things. It just wasn't mentioned. But and he, that makes him a good guy. This, and even if he did kind all of. Things, it still doesn't make him a good guy because it's obnoxious to magic a child into unconsciousness for, what, probably 15 hours? Ever how long he sat out there on the doorstep before the Dursleys got up? A child who who has had the most deadly curse known in the world, according in Dumbledore's mind, which how he knew that Harry, that's another thing, how he knew that Harry had been struck by the killing curse. Excuse me. <laughs> how did Dumbledore know what happened in the nursery? Okay. Now, in, in my story, in we Slytherin can... Black, I, cho- I chose to interpret that as that Dumbledore is that, and it, it is legit that there is a rune that looks like the lightning bolt, Soilo or something like that. Soilo, I think that's yes, how you pronounce yes. it. It's the sun, the sun rune. Is it because his scar was shaped, and that happens to be the um, wand movement for the for the Aveda Kedavra is that same shape. So Dumbledore interpreted because the scar was that shape of the wand movement that that's what it was. So I chose to have Harry's scar be a rune and not a curse scar instead because otherwise that's it doesn't awesome, make though. sense. It doesn't make sense that Dumbledore looks at that scar and inferred killing curse from it unless he was basing it on the wand movement. Of- here's some here's an uglier and more vicious idea. 
if we accept canon um, and accept that nefariously placed letter at Grimwall Place um, and that James has let Dumbledore borrow the cloak, perhaps he let him borrow it in the week that he placed the, um, the Fidelis charm. So Dumbledore um, possessed the cloak of invisibility. What if he was there? Ew. And the reason he knows that Harry Potter survived the killing curse is because he was standing in the nursery when it happened. He watches the murder of Lily Potter. He watches Harry Potter take the curse and survive. He watches Wormtail come and go and take Voldemort's wand with him. He watches the arrival of Sirius. He watches the arrival of Snape, who steps over James Potter's dead body, comes up the stairs and cradles Lily's dead body like he's going to die, while he ignores her screaming child and Dumbledore watches from the corner. And after he's watched all this, and Snape leaves, abandoning Harry, and he Dumbledore goes back to um, Hogwarts and sends Hagrid to pick up the kid. That is so ugly. <laughs> I said it was. Dark Lord Dumbledore. I mean, seriously. Because how else would he fucking know what happened? Unless he watched it. The magical forensics are like fucking can't fanon, but it, and they're fun to play with. But there's no mention of them whatsoever in Harry Potter because it's told largely from Harry Potter's point of view. And Harry Potter actually happens to be the least curious, curious character character ever. <laughs> and when when authors talk about how curious Harry is, I'm like, did we read the same book? Double bird. I, around book three. I wish that book three had been Hermione Granger and the Prisoner of Azkaban, because then we would have learned some shit. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, if you just look at if you look at the death of the Potters, if you look at the if you look at what happened in that that whole thing, you have got the Dark Lord has been killing everyone. And I dressed some of this in Slytherin black because it made no sense to me. Is that you have got unspeakables are canon. You would think they'd want to make sure that Voldemort was dead. You'd think they'd want to examine the remains. You'd think they'd want to examine the house. But apparently everybody took Dumbledore's word for what happened in that house, and then they closed it up and made it some sort of weird shrine. That doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense that, that people who have magical curiosity and who are there to investigate magical phenomena would... I'll call in sick when the greatest dark lord of modern times is killed. And all of these supposedly semi-intelligent people thought that a 15-month-old baby defeated Voldemort? Now, if the prophecy was well-known... I could see them buying into it. But nobody knows the prophecy but Dumbledore. So everybody took Dumbledore's word for what happened in that house. Everybody did. How the hell did Dumbledore know? Did I can tell, tell you how he spread it. it. What if he had monitoring he, charms? That's, impo- that's, that's possible too, which means he watched their murders from a distance, which is honestly no different than him being standing there in the corner. 
No, definitely not. Con- um, considering how fast he could have arrived. Pop, Especially pop. since if he was watching and he waited, if he saw it happen and then took action, waited for them to die and see what Harry did and then took action, that'd be one thing. But then he sat there and continued to monitor to see what fallout there was going to be. So Harry just sat there and screamed until Sirius showed up. Or, I mean, actually until Snape showed up. But it's just, I mean, it just, if Dumbledore knew what happened in there, he's really evil. If he didn't know what happened in there, and he just basically concocted a story that was convenient for him and fed it to the wizarding, wizarding world, he's not quite as evil, but almost as evil, and the wizarding world are all idiotic sheep. <laughs> sheeple. They're all sheeple. That's absolutely right, Melody. Um, so Dumbledore knows what happened in the nursery. Ever how he knows. He witnessed it in some way, or he's discerned it from magic. What's he do? He tells the person least likely to keep a secret, Hagrid, (laughs) (laughs) and the boy who lived is born. A very convenient pawn for his game. The thing is, is I know from a writer's point of view that J.K. Rowling did not mean any of this. Dumbledore, in her mind, is a pure, thoughtful, magical, grandfatherly character. But again, she attributes actions to him that have consequences that perhaps didn't cross her mind when she was writing it. You gotta keep in mind that Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was her first book. And it's a it's a lot of scenes that I think she saw in her head. Wouldn't that be neat? And they are. They capture our attention. They rivet us to the point that we were clamoring for the next book. And they're great scenes. Do they logically hold together? Most of them, no. But then she's also written this book for a child who wouldn't necessarily, outside norm, um, attribute evil to Dumbledore's actions. Right. No, she does not still insist that Harry was not abused. I think that was her gut reaction because she didn't mean to. I she she said that first in an interview, and I I think from just from from a writer's point of view, she had a perspective of of Harry's. Um, childhood as being unloving but uh, I think because she didn't mean to write him as an abused child that when it was pointed out to her that the circumstances that she wrote um, were to be considered abusive that it shocked her and so her first reaction was denial but no she no longer denies um, um, denies that Harry grew up in an abusive neglectful environment environment in fact, I think even in she uh, part of the uh, anti discrimination campaign, she even talked about how no one deserves to live in a, in a closet, talking about coming out and um, you know gay rights and all that stuff. So it isn't. I, I just don't think she realized what she wrote. And and you do that. I mean, as a writer, you, you do that and you write something. And if you're not thinking about through all of the ramifications. Of it and right, the, um, these were bedtime stories for her kids, and there's no telling how much of it was influenced by questions her kids asked or things that her kids liked. 
um, you know, the flying horses and the dragons and the, the mer people. And, you know, so these stories probably were generated in a very organic way. And while, yes, while she did not mean for it, Dumbledore did become the darkest character in the story because he literally led Harry Potter to suicide. Knowing all along that was going to happen. And you know, this is this goes back to the illustration I gave um, earlier about the character who'd been missing for six days and nobody noticed, and, and that it wasn't their joke at his expense that was funny. It was the fact that they didn't notice he was gone. Is this is a case of where you have these great things. It's a great story for a little boy. It's full of adventure. It's full of magic. It's full of wonder. But it makes ninety percent of the cast assholes. <laughs> It actually makes McGonagall as big as asshole as Dumbledore. I mean, she knew how bad the Dursleys were, and she never went to check on Harry. Mm-hmm. And then Harry escorted into her house, and she never noticed that he was underweight and under height. Um, really? And then he wore clothes three times too big for him? And his I shoes started, were taped together? I started a story where after... Um, after first year, Hermione's conflicted because she knows that Harry's abused. And this was this was just a tangent in my head about Hermione's a very smart kid. And so she knows she's conflicted, and so she knows that Harry's abused. And she talks to her parents about should she keep a secret. And her parents encourage her and support her in calling the muggle authorities about Harry's home life. And so Harry gets picked up by child services, and when they go to follow up on the whole thing, there's no record of any of it, and Harry's back with the Dursleys, and it's like it never happened. And so Hermione gets in a snit because she's furious about what she sees as magical interference in Harry's situation. And so she marches herself down to the Ministry of Magic and tells (laughs) um, Amelia Bones just what she thinks of memory charming muggles and that it's just absolute nonsense and them not protecting wizarding children and then it result results in Harry being picked up and anyway anyway so I'm working on this story but that was just <laughs> thing came out of what if you don't what if you took one character and I decided to work with Hermione because this was the what if so we take one character who decides to act differently around Harry when they meet him in the first year and what would happen, realistically? And I decided to do it with Hermione because I had a hard time with the fact that the adults had ignored him for 11 years. And this is, this is, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things you just got to think about when you're writing and you're doing something is, is it your intention what you're doing to everybody else in the story? And obviously it wasn't J.K. Rowling's intention to have every adult in her story be an asshole except for Sirius and you know sometimes even he was and a he was dick. kind of an asshole too yeah he was <laughs> she she had gave him his asshole moments but she unintentionally <laughs> made her his asshole moments were intentional but she unintentionally made every good adult in the story a complete asshole <laughs> because of the things that she did to achieve Harry's adventure if and they're not is, assholes, then Dumbledore is darker than Voldemort. Because if they're not doing that on their own, ignoring Harry's health, um, ignoring Umbridge, torturing students, then Dumbledore has to be manipulating them. 
So when you're writing your story and you're writing these things or you have a scene or whatever, think through the ripples. How does this ripple out? What does it make it what does it look like from an outsider's perspective? What does it look like from a third party character? What does it make my third party character look like or my secondary character or whatever? Think through these things. And, you know, granted, you could do the whole, you, you could get bogged down, especially with something like Harry Potter. You could get bogged down in thinking through these things to the point that you don't get anything written. <laughs> but <laughs> when you're plotting, when you're world building, whatever it is, think about it. Think about it. Think about what it says about Tony Dinozo if you are writing a late series um story, NCIS story, so say season 13, think about what it says about him as a character that he stayed with the team and said nothing about dead air and continued on day after day after day going out in the field with those people. And then get shot by Ziva, basically, in that container because she can't follow orders. Mm -hmm. And and he stays. Yeah. And even manages to apparently fall in love with her, which makes me want to just slap myself in the head. Okay. (laughs) But think through what that (laughs) says about him, that he stays over and over and over and over again. It's really a character leap to have Tony, late season Tony, a confident, assertive, badass with a lot of self-respect finally getting fed up <laughs> because most people don't need 13 years if they're confident to get and assertive fed up. and have um and and have a lot of self-respect they don't need 13 years of abuse before they're done with it <laughs> okay someone just said something in the chat room that kind of struck me odd why Fornell didn't save him i don't know why didn't tony save himself, himself. he's a grown-ass man he doesn't need that white knight to, sh- to come riding in to save him. He's a he's an adult. <laughs> he's supposed to be an adult. There are so many points when I can justify Tony going, this is the moment that I'm done. This is the moment that I'm done. This is the moment that I'm done. And I can, and every time I write something that is dead air, I don't ever write anything later than dead air. I almost let dead air didn't happen. But every time I write something that is dead air, um, I have to, I sit and think through, why did he stay after Somalia? Why did he stay after he was hauled off to Mossad. Why did no. he stay after the way Gibbs treated him and the way the whole team treated him about the undercover app, uh, undercover app? Back up a little bit more. Why did he stay with the way he was treated after Gibbs came back from Mexico? Back up a little bit further. Why was he treated? Why would he? Why did he stay after the way that there was no ramifications, repercussions for Ziva being a lunatic in that shipping container? Why did he stay um, when Ziva took Kate's place? So I I have that in my head. Back out it why. all the way up and ask yourself why he stayed the first time Gibbs knocked him in the back of the head. Explain yeah, that, that to me because I'm an adult. And I'll tell you right now, if I had a boss smack me in the back of the head, that boss would have charges filed against him. 
especially as hard as Gibbs does it sometimes. Those are not little love taps sometimes. And while I do agree that Fournell was definitely the most adult adult on the show, he's he's definitely mm-hmm. got that adulting down. Um, Tony shouldn't have to be rescued. He's he's a grown ass man. And if he does have he to be rescued, if that's the direction you're going with, then you need to consider that he's emotionally damaged. You can't have, I mean, it's like, if you want to go explore that, explore it. But consider that someone who's in that situation where they need rescuing is damaged. And you have to account for that. You have to write it in. You have to, you have, to have it have some consequence. And he's not... too damaged. And the consequences of him being damaged is that he doesn't cry every fucking time someone looks at him wrong. No. Because someone can be damaged and stay in a bad situation and not be emotional all the time. Someone can be damaged and putting up with something that is not optimal because they think they can't find anything better. There are there are reasons why someone who is damaged will put up with things. And if you're going to do a he-needs-to-be-rescued-because-he's-damaged sort of situation, the damage can't vanish the moment that he's rescued. You don't stay in an abusive situation for 13 years and it goes away the first day you're away from it. Because they asked, that's why you stayed so long because he's damaged. No, the character of Tony Dinoza stayed where he was for so long because the writers of NCIS have a formula. A very bad formula. And that formula is a box and in that box are this set of characters and they cannot mature, grow, change in any way, which is why Abby's still a 12-year-old. The NCIS characters, the further the season went on, became caricatures, not characters. And that is why they all stayed and fulfilled their part. They were caricatures of themselves. It is very static. They are very, very static. And they're they they're they're it's why it's why I mean caricatures have exaggerated traits. It's why Tony was so exaggerated. He became more and more exaggerated. But any time they had a Tony focused episode, it was like he had a personality change. And we all went, Wow, this is a really in depth this is a character with a lot of depth and he's had an interesting life and and then he'd go back to character. He'd go back in his caricature box in the next episode, making jokes, being the butt of jokes, giving a foil for lightening things up. And what happens is that people do things with him in fan fiction that just don't make sense. They just don't. They just you know. They just if you're trying to make it gel, if you're going to give him some rationale, give him a set-up moment, I've got to get out. You're going to have to explain, if you're doing it late season, you got to have a reason why it took him 13 years to have that set-up moment. Like, if I have Tony's set-up moment be the beginning of season three, I don't even think I have to go very hard to figure out, explain why he got fed up. But the later it gets in the season, the more thought and the more work it takes. And if you want... Fan fiction gives us an opportunity to work with established characters. And there's a lot, you, you, can, you have a character that is familiar to people, and you can draw people in, and you can build them in ways that make them new and original and, and fresh to your writing. 
and give them depth they didn't have in canon. So it's kind of a practice ground for characterization. So if you're gonna, if you if you're interested in writing original fiction, you have to think about character motivation. You have to think about why they do what they do and what the ramifications are of letting certain canon circumstances stand the way they are in your story. And if you don't think that stuff through, well, I would say that you, I, I'm, well, I'm probably not going to read it. There you go. That's all I can say. You can do whatever the <laughs> hell you want to do, but I'm probably going to roll my eyes until I see my brain. And exactly, X. I'm going to note the fuck out. I have noted the fuck out a couple of times in the past couple of days. You might have noticed my bitching on Facebook about it. Um, what, uh, what it boils down to is that your that your writer, um, that the writer does things um, and writes things in a vacuum without um, oftentimes acknowledging how other people's perspectives will hit the work. For instance, when my nephew read Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, he brought it back to me and he sat it down and he sat down with me. He says, can we talk? And I was like, yeah. What'd you think of it? He goes, it was great. It was a lot of fun. I really liked it. I said, okay. He said, do they not have CPS in Britain? <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure they, they do have some form of child protective services in Britain. I'm 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 sure they do, yes. And he said, Where 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 were they? <laughs> he grew up in a cupboard. <laughs> you don't grow up in a cupboard. <laughs> he was in he was incensed because he thought there wasn't child protective services in Britain. And then when he found out they were that they were there, he was furious because no one saved Harry Potter. He was absolutely furious. It reminds me of that scene in The Princess Bride when um, the grandfather is reading to the character that, that Fred Savage plays. And it gets to the part where Buttercup and um, Wesley are kissing after they get reunited. And he said, is this a kissing book? <laughs> As a matter of fact, it is a kissing book. But um, so yeah, I mean, he was just—he was incensed. He was just—he just could. Because first, he was like, "If they don't have top services in Britain, we need to go over there and fix that." He was like, "Hey, just precious." Um, and then when he realized that they were there and that they just didn't save Harry, he was, oh, God, he was inconsolable. To the point where I didn't think he would even read book two. But the next day he came and got book two. I said, they still don't rescue him. He was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> he was so mad. <laughs> so, you know, it's it, it's about perspective. And a lot of eight-year-olds, it wouldn't have even crossed their mind. I mean, my niece, when she read it, she kind of liked the idea. She wanted to move into her to, to her closet. I was like, no, you can't live in your closet because <laughs> they have a walk-in closet. The um the girls share a big room and they have a walk-in closet. And the, the, the little the, the youngest one wanted to live in the closet because Harry Potter lived in a cupboard. She thought it was cool. It's about perspective. So it, it stands to reason that one of J.K. Rowling's kids thought it would be really cute if Harry grew up in a cupboard. I have to admit that I let my we let my brother live in the in the closet for a while. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, 
this is as adults, okay, for starters, we were kids, but as adults, my sister and I, this, we're, in, we're, in our, we're in our early 20s, I think, we had this great townhouse, and it had these two enormous master suites, and her her, her her bedroom had this enormous storage room. It was actually bigger than the bedroom. It was like 20 by 17. Mm-hmm. Through a door in the closet. And my brother had like no place to stay. And we're like, after like a couple of weeks, we're like, you can't just stay on the couch, dude. This is just not working. And so it occurred to him, he asked, because we didn't have anything in this enormous storage room in the closet, if he could live in that storage room. <laughs> so for like, I don't know, three or four months, my brother is coming and going from my sister's closet. That's hilarious. <laughs> we actually put, he had two dressers and bookcases and a bed in there. It was just so weird. <laughs> he can actually say he lived in a closet. That is so funny. It is so really funny. Think, of, think about, so when you think about um, reader perspective, imagine you were coming into, let's say, NCIS late season, so the season 13, and you're getting to know these characters. Tony Dinozo has been senior field agent on the major case response team for at least 14 years. It would be a logical and completely rational thing to say, well, he must not be very good at it. Because <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> he have his own for team. 14 years, he hasn't moved on. What the hell? Who doesn't get promoted after 14 years? I mean, they set up a scenario of incompetence on the show, right? And that is a legitimate perspective for somebody who hasn't, doesn't walk through and have all this emotional rationale for the whole team family thing, blah, 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 dysfunctional family. But there you go. And you could, you could immediately go, well, this doesn't make any sense. None of these people have, have, have grown or moved on or learned anything in 15 years. It doesn't sound very good. It sounds really a terrible. Perspective. It does sound terrible. So you have to assign as a fan fiction writer reasons why Tony would stay if you're going to write him that way. And the most obvious one is because he's um, got an immense, terribly emotional boner for Gibbs. <laughs> and that and that is its own level of patheticness. That is its own level it, it of really patheticness. It really is. Especially if it's, like, unrequited. Mm-hmm. I mean... I mean, if it's like if, if if they're actually a couple and they're getting it on, then they've got an abusive relationship, and I I don't know what to yeah, about that. Yeah, because he hits Tony a lot. He hits, he hits he's Tony mean a to lot him. in the head. Yeah. I think if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, you have to, if you're going to make them a couple through the whole series, and that that's why Tony hasn't moved on. Then you have to think through what in canon hasn't should have changed as a result of their coupledom, because there's a lot of things that happened that shouldn't have happened if if Tony's was Gibbs' lover, or his husband. He sure as hell wouldn't have gone to Israel. No. No. I don't even think so. I don't think, and if he, and I don't think that, um, um, I don't think the rescue of Ziva would have happened either. I don't think Gibbs would have been down for his husband putting his life no, on because, the line that way. Because at that point, um, Ziva would have been responsible for Tony's near murder. She didn't ever come back from Israel the first time. And mm-hmm. um, he, mm-mm, mm-mm, it had been done. Mm-mm. So it's just the whole, I think that the whole message here is just stop and think about what you're doing. Think about your character motivation. Think about the rationale behind your, um, so let's, 
say you're reading a story. It's a little late in the show. I'll be putting up another example. But let's say you're reading a story, and the sky turns purple twice a day. All right? So the NCIS picked the sky turns purple twice a day. It's not weird to anybody. No one thinks anything about it, and there's no reason for it. So why is the sky turning purple? It's just a distraction. If it doesn't have a reason and it doesn't have impact, why are you doing it? Except to note, and this, and there are seriously think about it. there are times when you're reading stuff where literally people will throw details in that are as weird as the sky turning purple twice a day for no reason and with no impact. And you're like, what? What? The, what? What the actual fuck are you thinking? Well, really. Um, sometimes, you know, if like, okay, say for instance that Dumbledore is a real asshole and all these things that he does are just manipulative as fuck and he's cursing the staff so that they don't notice that Harry is not what he should be and he's cursing muggle authorities so they don't figure out that, that Harry is being abused. What is his motivation? Now, mm-hmm. it's easy just to make Dumbledore Dark Lord and he's fucking crazy. But even Voldemort had motivation. It wasn't good motivation. <laughs> but he was motivated. Crazy. You can't have a character moving around in the story doing evil shit without a cause. Um, and I think one of the reasons why, and I was reading an article about this and I, I, I wish I had kept it because I, I, I would put it on um, Rough Trade. Um, about character motivations and how the character of the Joker ruined a generation of writers. Because the Joker literally has no no motives. He's just crazy. And he does shit because he's crazy. But that even people motivation. who are crazy have a he's crazy. for doing the things that they do. But the Joker's motivations are never revealed. He's just a crazy ass who likes to cause damage and chaos and confusion. And that's it. That's his entire motivation. And so a lot of writers kind of clenched onto that, and they create these characters that literally have no true motivation. They're just like this dark presence moving through the story with, with no goal. It is really frustrating. So when you have a character acting against your hero, doing things, um, making their life difficult, um, and you don't reveal their motivation, it's just weird. It just feels flat because it's like the other side of the equal sign. You know, it's like what's on it. What's the reason for this? Did you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Um, that's a reverence to making a deal with the devil. Did you ever make a deal with the devil? And it necessarily have to be the actual devil, but did you ever make a deal with somebody um, in a bad way? Did you ever make a deal um, in darkness uh in uh to do something evil um or with a witch yeah it's 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 about making a deal with a dark influence basically did you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight did you ever make a bargain for something evil 
that that's what I got from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. <clears throat> So in a way that you can say that um, that Snape danced with the devil twice. And in some way, if you go by canon, he knew he was sort of incurably tarnished because of it. When it comes back to Snape's I mean, redic- re- was it redemption, even if he was redeemable after the events of Godric Hollow... The way he treated kids in the canon events of Harry Potter are unforgivable. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And, you know, if if you go Unless on the Unless Dumbledore go- cursed him, which is what I did in one of my stories. Dumbledore cursed the shit out of Snape. <laughs> yeah, that works too. But if you go with the idea that he is... Um, being redeemed, he actually is taking his protection of Harry, keeping Harry alive, the whole deal. Um, he's treating it more like a, a, a punishment than a chance for redemption. Exactly, like he would be perfectly happy if Harry did die. Right. But he's being punished. <laughs> and he has to keep the little shit alive, <laughs> despite his wishes. And, you know, this comes to you, if you have to jump through 50 hoops and it takes you 20 pages of notes to get around canon, an event in canon, because you're trying to make something happen, maybe you should try a different perspective, a different point of view. Try to make something different happen. Back up further. I'm going to use since and brought it up in the chat room, her example. When she decided to redeem Snape and she got to really sitting and down and thinking about it, she had to go all the way back to his Hogwarts years to fix him. Because that's easier than the hoops you have to jump through <laughs> to make season, to make Deathly Hallows Snape redeemable. We're down to 90 seconds. Snape didn't give a shit about Harry. He did not care that he was Lily's child. He did not care if he lived. He only cared about Lily and her survival. That's canon. Anyways, we're down to a minute and 22 seconds. I'll probably be on tomorrow as well because I'm not actually writing right now. I'm having a difficult time doing that. Um, It's making me kind of bitchy. And... I think we're not quite done with this conversation, so we're going to do it again tomorrow, and maybe Lady Holder can come online and play with us and talk about her consequences and her changes and do all that. Sweet. So we'll we'll continue, and we and we might do a plot drift on Sunday. Yay. I'm gonna make some idea. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.